I invite you to bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord, uh, Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as together we meditate on your will for our lives, your word for our lives. Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O oh God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as um, I said at the beginning, this is the, another one of these weeks during Lent when we are looking at the series that we're calling Jesus Walks Into a Bar, right? And what we're really looking at with this series is the idea that what most of the world would say is true is that all religions are fundamentally the same. You know, basically at their root, they're all the same. They just might use some different words or some different ways of expressing it. But when you dig down beyond those, you'll see that all religions are fundamentally the same thing. That's what the world would say. But the Bible reveals something very different. That religions may be superficially the same. They may talk about God or they may, you know, talk about being kind to one another or things like this. But when you drill down, religions are fundamentally different. They all claim to have a different view of truth and how life works. And uh, so we're taking some time to look at different world religions. Now, you know, this, we're not doing this because we're trying to say, hey, we're smarter than you. Or we're not doing this because we're trying to promote being intolerant to people of other religions or anything like that. We simply want to know, what did Jesus say truth was? And we want to be equipped, we want to be able, as people who follow Jesus and believe he is our Lord and our Savior, we want to be able to articulate what the differences are, what what Jesus' truth was all about. And we want to do that, of course, the way he would do it. We want to do that in love. So that's really what we're doing during this series. Now, um, we've targeted the four main religions that are at work in our country. This is a map that shows the second most um, popular religious tradition in each state. Now, the first most religious, uh, popular religious tradition in every one of our states in America is still Christianity. That, if you ask people what they are, uh, still people would say that they are Christian. And so when, when you look across America, in every single state, the, the majority of people would still say that they are Christian. But when you look at what is the second most popular religion, last week we looked at Hinduism, and that's the red color in New Mexico and uh, one of the states on the East Coast. Um, this week we are going to look at Buddhism, which is the yellow. So when you take a look at co- states in the West or in, in Alaska, Hawaii, um, Buddhism is the second most popular religion in those states. And uh, yet to come is still Judaism and Islam, which are the, the pink color and the green color. We'll be looking at those over the next couple of weeks. But tonight we're talking about Buddhism. Now, it's the fourth largest religion in the world. And, and one little caveat I want to add here is that there were some people that would say Buddhism isn't really a religion, it's more a philosophy. And the reason they would say that is there is no claim in Buddhism that there is a god. Or that there is some God to be worshipped. That, that doesn't exist in Buddhism. And as a result, some people say, well, Buddhism isn't really a religion then. But, but I think when you take a look at what we're saying Buddhism teaches, and when you look at the worldview of Buddhism, it's still a religious way of thinking about life and about the universe and about the meaning of life. And so that's why still most people would consider Buddhism a religion, the fourth largest one in the world. Here in the United States, there are about three and a half million people. So that's a little less, about 0.7% of the U.S. population would say that they are Buddhists. It's not really very much, not really very big. But it's still important for us to talk about because there are a lot of very influential Americans, first of all, that are Buddhist. Tiger Woods, Steve Jobs, 
Harrison Ford, you know, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Some people say the two most attractive people in the world, you know. But, uh, but whatever you believe about that, there, there, are, there are some very influential people in our world and in specifically in our country that would say that they are Buddhists. And even more than that, the, there are some significant things of Buddhist thought that affect a lot of what people think in our country today. You know, the whole idea of karma that we learned about last week in Hinduism is also present in Buddhism. That idea that what goes around comes around, and if you're nice to people, good things will happen to you, and if you're mean to people, bad things will happen to you. That's, that's, uh, that whole idea of karma is one of the philosophies of Buddhism that affects everyday thinking a lot of people. And in fact, um, the Dalai Lama, who was here in the country uh, this past year, he is a Buddhist, and when he spoke across the country, he filled auditoriums all over the place. Here in Chicago, he had a couple of lectures, and he absolutely sold out the auditoriums. There were tens of thousands of people that wanted to hear what he had to say, that believed he had something important to say in their lives. I mean, heck, even my Apple Watch has a little mindfulness app, right? It's called the Breathe app. And, it, and once a day, it taps me on the wrist and encourages me to meditate, okay? That comes from Buddhist thinking, okay? So, so even if you may not know a Buddhist, you know people, and in fact, we ourselves have probably been influenced by Buddhist thought. So it's good that we take some time to talk about it tonight. Now let's talk about the history. Where does Buddhism come from? Well, there was this guy that lived about 500 years before Jesus called Siddhartha Gautama. He became the first Buddha. And he is the one who founded this, this way of thinking, this religion. Now, he was originally born into a Hindu family somewhere on the, on the uh, border of India. And um, uh, I can't remember the other country now. That other country right next to India, okay? What? Nepal, thank you very much. Now, see, now tomorrow morning I'll remember it because you reminded me. And if not, I'll look right over there and imagine you sitting there telling me Nepal. So, yeah, it was right on the border of India and Nepal is where he was born. He was actually born into a fairly wealthy family. But from very early on, as he practiced the Hindu religion we learned about last week, from very early on he was troubled by the problem of suffering. And, by the way, a lot of people are troubled by that, aren't they? You know, why does suffering exist? Why do some people seem to suffer more than others? What's the story behind suffering that, that bothered him, it troubled him? And it troubled him so much that he decided to dedicate his life to trying to answer that question. And he literally gave up his family, he gave up his wealth, just so he could spend the rest of his life seeking the answer to this problem of suffering. And in fact, he did believe that he had found that answer. He believed the problem of suffering was desire. Now, the dictionary defines desire as a strong feeling of wanting to have something or wishing something would happen. Okay, that's desire. And the, the original Buddha, Buddha decided that all of us have desires, and because we have those desires, and because those di desires often are not satisfied, that is why we suffer. Now, to be clear, he was certainly talking about what we would call bad desires, right? Things like a desire for power over other people, or a desire to be famous, or a desire for things that we would call forbidden pleasures, or things that we know are wrong and bad for us, but we still want them. 
You know, we would, I think, all agree that those kind of desires can mess a person up. But Buddha took it a step further. He said it was not just those kinds of desires, but things that we would call maybe healthy desires or good desires that were also the cause of suffering. Things like joy, a desire for love and relationship, a desire for health. These are things that we all desire. And, and, and what he said is, the problem is we desire those things, but they never quite live up to our desires. Or eventually they will let us down. Even the people we love and, and the relationships that we have, those relationships can fall apart. And even the people that we love can, can disappoint us. Or, or maybe through no power of their own, they, they, they die or they become sick and they're unable to c- continue to extend that relationship with us. And he said, so uh, all suffering, he said, is related to having desire for good or bad things. But when those desires let us down, we suffer. And so he was especially troubled by old age because he saw people growing old. And and he saw as we grow older, we begin to lose our health and we we begin to lose our friends. and, 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 And it was that suffering that as people got older that all people seemed to experience that really cemented for him this idea that suffering was caused by desire. And so his goal was, to get rid of desire. He designed these things he called the four noble truths, that life is suffering, that if you are alive, you will suffer. There's nothing you can do about it, except you need to recognize that your suffering is caused, and what it's caused by is your own desire for things. And the only way for suffering to end, short of death itself, is for you to do away with desire in your life. And so began what he called the Eightfold Path, and the five moral precepts, things like the right understanding, the right kind of thinking, the right kind of speech, the right kind of action, things like the right kind of mindfulness and concentration, meditation. He said through these practices, our goal was to separate ourselves from all desire in our lives. And then by living in a certain way, by avoiding taking others' life, uh, uh, avoiding taking what is not given to us, avoiding sexual misconduct and avoiding lying or speaking falsely, avoiding drink and drugs which can cloud our, our minds. He said if we would just live the right way and practice meditation and this, this task of disconnecting ourselves from desire, from life, from even the sense of self, when we do those things, then... We can be rid of suffering. Eventually, you can attain the state of nirvana, which is a total separation from not only suffering, but it's actually the goal is the end of self. So I don't think about myself anymore. I don't care about myself anymore. I have no desire anymore. I simply am. And then I won't suffer, Buddha said. And he believed he had achieved that in his life. Now, there's some good things in Buddhism. I mean, the words of the Dalai Lama, he gets thousands of people to hear him because he talks about good things. He talks about peace and nonviolence and, and not taking revenge on others and, and loving others and putting the needs of others before the needs of yourself. Those are all good things and very appealing, and those are all tenets of Buddhism. Dan Grissom, uh, our site pastor who's preaching over at Green Trails tonight on the same topic, um, he actually on Thursday went to a Buddhist reading room just to kind of talk to people there and check it out. And he said the lady in there was like the nicest person he had ever met. Some good things there. 
And, and there's some very positive things, by the way, to meditation. Um, you guys, I think, might know I had a heart attack two years ago, and it, part of my cardiac rehab is they taught me meditation. And they did that as a way of re, re, um, removing stress in my life and keeping my blood pressure down and everything like that. You know what? It works. It, it's really pretty good. But I'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end tonight. But that concept of being able to be set free from suffering, that's a good thing too, isn't it? To, to be able to remove suffering from our lives, that's very appealing to people. So there's a lot of good things in what we hear from the Buddhist tradition as well. But there's a couple fundamental problems. Here's, here's one problem. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you meditate, no matter how much you try to live your life the right way, you're still going to suffer. And, uh, and, and maybe there are a few rare people out there that, that become so selfless and so disconnected that they are able to remove themselves from suffering, but you'd have to convince me, right? No matter who you are, suffering seems to be a reality that we just can't avoid. And let's imagine that you actually could achieve nirvana the way that the Buddhists talk about, that you actually became, you know, just so good at meditating and so good at living the right way and thinking the right thoughts that you totally lost any sense of self, no relationships with others, no connection to others. Is that really how you want to live your life? I don't. I mean, there are days when being alone on a, on a mountain somewhere with nobody to bother me sounds pretty good, I admit. But, but that idea that I'd be so disconnected from life around me that I didn't feel any joy or any sorrow, any love, that doesn't sound like life to me. So the question we have tonight is, if Jesus is indeed the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, if he promises that his truth can truly set us free, what does Jesus have to say about this problem of suffering? What would Jesus say if he had a chance to sit down and talk to Buddha? Now, by the way, there's a Christian writer that actually has imagined that. He's written a whole book on it. It's called The Lotus and the Cross. His name is Ravi Zacharias. And by the way, this book is kind of where the whole idea for this series came from. Uh, so if this is interest of interest to you, if, if you've uh, looked into Buddhist thought some, or if you know some folks that have, or, or the subject is fascinating to you and you'd like to dive into it more than we can in a 20-minute message tonight, I'd encourage you to take a look at that book. It's really good. And it really does a great job of imagining that conversation between Jesus and Buddha. What would that be like? But, but let's just take a look at a few things we can say tonight. First of all, the Bible does teach us why suffering exists, and it's not desire. The Bible says this. In Romans chapter 8, we, we heard it read earlier in the service. It, it said, Paul's talking about suffering, and he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he kind of gets at what the Bible has to say about why suffering exists. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. See, the Bible teaches that the reason suffering exists in our world is because our world is broken. It's broken by the power of sin. God created a perfect universe in which there was no suffering. But he also gave human beings free will because the only way you can love someone is if you're doing it by choice, right? And human beings chose to sin. And as a result, our creation, this creation that God created is broken. And that means that sometimes we're going to suffer. 
Sin is the cause, not desire. And now, I want you to hear me clearly. What I'm not saying is that when you suffer, you can always look back at a sin that you've committed, and that's what caused your suffering. Now, sometimes that's true. Sometimes we do stuff that we know is wrong, and we pay the consequences of it, and we suffer as a result, and, and we can look back and go, yeah, I get it. I'm suffering now because I made some bad choices. But often that's not the case, is it? Often, often we suffer when we see someone we love going through pain or, or whether we ourselves are sick or, or, or we lose our job or whatever it is. Often when suffering exists, there's nothing specific that we did, but we do live in a broken, sinful world. And in that world, suffering is going to happen. It also says this in Romans 8, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. In other words, we suffer too, not just the creation. As we eagerly await adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. In other words, Paul is saying that the answer to suffering isn't my own actions. There's nothing I can do to rescue myself or separate myself from suffering. I need to be saved. I need someone to rescue me from suffering. So Jesus has some pretty important things to say about suffering tonight. And the first one is this. He promises that he will always be with us. Now think about that for a minute. God does not promise that he will take away suffering in your life, at least not now. And we'll talk in a minute about why that might be the case. But he does promise us that when we suffer, we will not suffer alone. That he will always be with us. You know, there's a whole book in the Bible about this question of suffering. It's the book of Job. And uh, do you remember that story? Job is suffering. He's going through some horrible problems in his life. And, uh, And he has some friends that come to be with him and talk to him. And most of the book of Job is his friends telling him why they think he's suffering. And it's a mess, isn't it? When you read through it, his friends say some pretty stupid things. But somebody pointed out to me a couple of years ago that they actually started off pretty well. Look at this. This is in Job chapter 2. And his friends find out about Job's problems and they come to see him. And they say when they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And then look what it says about halfway through. It says, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word. You see, if they had just kept their mouths shut, they would have done a pretty good job of being with their friend. Now, then they open their mouths and that's the next 30-some chapters of Job, and like I said, it's pretty much a mess. But, but the first thing that Job's friends did, their first instinct was to simply be with him, to not try to rationalize why he was suffering, to not try to solve the problem for him. They were just there for him. It's pretty good. That's what God promises to you and to me, that, that we will never suffer alone. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He suffered himself when he was here on this earth. And he will not abandon us in the middle of our suffering. The second thing that Jesus teaches that he would have to say about suffering is this, that he can use our suffering for good. He can redeem even our suffering. I think one of my favorite promises in all of the Bible is this verse from Romans 8, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, even our suffering, even our pain, even the difficulty in our lives, God promises he can and will use 
for good. Now, now hear me clearly. God does not cause us to suffer. He does not bring suffering into our lives. Again, the cause of suffering is we live in a broken, sinful world. But he promises us that when we suffer, he can use it for good in our lives. And sometimes when the suffering is done and we look back, we can see the good that came of it. I've even had people say to me who had gone through cancer or or other horrible things, I wouldn't change a thing because God used that for this in my life. But other times, we look back and we may not see the good, but he promises that good is there, and maybe someday with a heavenly perspective we will. There's another passage where he talks about that. It's earlier in the book of Romans. Again, we heard it read earlier. Paul says we can even rejoice when we suffer. Because we know that that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In other words, Paul says you can be happy when you suffer because God's promise to you is that suffering will lead to hope in your life. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Here's here's another way to think about this. Every once in a while you'll see a, a story in the news about a little boy or a little girl who's born with this rare condition, which means they can't feel pain. Have you heard of that? It's a rare medical condition. Uh, diabetics experience it a little bit in their, in their fingers or in their toes and things like that. And uh, that's actually one of the problems in leprosy. People with leprosy also lose feeling in their extremities. But these are little kids that feel no pain at all anywhere ever. And it's a horrible problem because pain is the way your body lets you know something is wrong, that, that you need to get fixed or that you need to pay attention to. And so if you can't feel any pain... Actually, some very dangerous medical conditions can exist, and you don't even know they're there. In in this particular article, this was uh, in uh, NBC News just not that long ago, one of the parents said something that I thought was really kind of amazing. She said, there have been many, many times I have begged God for my daughter to be able to feel pain. Think about that for a minute. I think most times we as parents would say, I don't want my kid to ever feel any pain. But, but she's saying, no, I've experienced that, and it's not good. They need to feel pain sometimes so they know something is wrong. God lets suffering happen in our lives sometimes because he knows he can make good come of it in our lives. He can use it for good in our lives. Third, here's the, here's the promise that we have from God. Our suffering is temporary. Our, our suffering is going to end. That day is going to come. Again, back to Romans chapter 8, Paul said, we're eagerly awaiting for the redemption of our bodies. We're eagerly awaiting for salvation to happen. When will your suffering be totally gone? In heaven, right? We get a little glimpse of that in the book of Revelation. Uh, John, the apostle John that saw that little glimpse of heaven said it this way. He said, when, that, when, when heaven gets here, God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and there's not going to be any more death and there's not going to be any more crying. And there's not going to be any mourning. There's not going to be any pain. Suffering will eventually end. That is God's promise to you and to me. We, we can't rid ourselves of suffering, but he can and he will someday in heaven. One last thing that I think Jesus would want to talk to Buddha about, and that's this whole idea that desire is bad. Now, there are some desires that are bad, no doubt about it. The Bible teaches that very clearly. But not all desire is bad. In fact, I love this verse from Psalm 37, uh, where the psalmist says this, If you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. I mean, think about that for a minute. The image here is that if we have that relationship with God, if, if our focus is on Jesus and, and his will and his plan for our lives, when we delight ourselves 
in God and his plan, he gives us the desire of our heart. He gives us life the way it's supposed to be lived. In another place, you've heard this verse before. We use it a lot here at Trinity. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The answer to suffering in our life is not to get rid of desire. It's it's to see God fulfill the good desires in our lives, the desire for, for family and for friends and for food and for relationships and for worship and for God's word and, and for fun. God created us for those things. And his promise to us, his will for us, is not that we have to get rid of those things and get rid of our desire, but that he would redeem even our desire so that we could live life the way he planned for us to live. Now, I, I promised you uh, before one little thing about meditation. Do you know the Bible talks about meditation a lot? I, I think a lot of Christians think, oh, meditation, that's like Eastern stuff. That's bad. But again and again and again. In fact, read through the Psalms. and th- There's probably about 30 times in the Psalms when it talks about Christians meditating on God's will, meditating on God's word. There's a story in the Old Testament where Isaac went away to meditate. And uh, meditation in and itself isn't bad. When, when uh, I told you, when I had my heart attack, one of the things in my cardiac rehab they taught me was meditation. But what they were teaching me was Buddhist meditation, this idea of, of, of being mindful of your body, focusing on your breathing, and then clearing your mind, emptying your mind, not thinking about anything. Well, that's not what I did. Because the Bible says that we should fill our mind with him and with his word. And, and meditation in the Bible isn't emptying our mind. Meditation in the Bible is meditating on God and his mighty deeds, the works that his promises, what he has done. So, uh, so while the instructor was up there saying, empty your mind, I was thinking of a Bible verse I had memorized and just focusing on that while I was focused on my breathing. And you know what? That worked just as well to get my blood pressure down. In fact, I think it probably worked a little better. Here was one of my favorites. It's a Bible verse that's actually up on the wall in our, in our family room. Be still and know that I am God. It's amazing when you take just 10 minutes to just be still and to focus on that promise from God over and over again. Be still and know that I am God. That's God's promise to you and me. That we can be still. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of struggles, that we can be still and know that he is God. He loves us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He can use even our pain for good in our lives. And one day, we're going to be in a place where there is no pain, and there's life to be lived the way he designed it. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.